Hello and welcome to episode number 156 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, November 17th, 2014. And in this episode of the podcast, I will be playing the second part of my interview with Tom Giesel, who is the honorary historian of the National Farmers Union and also a farmer in the state of Kansas. And this conversation features a lot more discussion on the theme of cooperatives, which has been covered quite extensively on the podcast over the past several episodes, so I hope you'll enjoy it. And if you have any other case study recommendations for me, please send them my way and I will follow up with some of those folks and see if I can get them as interview guests for the Agro Innovations podcast. Please enjoy the second part of my interview with Tom Giesel. One of the things that's, I think, interesting with the genesis of the Farmers Union is this focus on cooperatives. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that cooperative uh, structure or the actual cooperatives that have existed as the results of the work of the Farmers Union, what has happened to those? Are a lot of them still in existence? Have a lot of them faded out of existence? And if so, why? Well, there there are quite a number that are in existence yet. Um, and a lot of them have faded out, but that, some of that's natural. Um, some are very small and needed to merge, but we've always had this this back-and-forth argument, even back in the 1920s, about, you know, do we need local cooperatives or do we need regional cooperatives? And, and people say, well, you know, obviously we've got to have the local cooperatives to, to you know, to function locally. But, but they said, well, if you just have local cooperatives without a regional cooperative or a large, much larger one, you're just selling into an economic system, it's the same thing. You really haven't gained you really haven't gained too much. So that's been a, a, a long time um, back and forth. You know, today, in regard to agriculture cooperatives, CHS, and Harvest States, is, um, is just a huge cooperative and um, a great cooperative for farmers. And it had its very roots in Farmers Union. Um, the Senex name actually comes from Farmers Union Central Exchange. It was an acronym and Harvest States was another farmers union cooperative, and so they've merged over the years several times and, and have this wonderful cooperative structure that, that takes care of and supplies many local cooperatives. And local cooperatives, um, you know, the, I guess I guess what happens with, with cooperatives, and, and Gladys Talbert Edwards in the 19, late 1920s in North Dakota had a great handle on this. She was an education director for a farmers union, she understood the need that you need to, you have to continue to educate people on why cooperatives exist because, you know, you establish them, they work great, and two or three years later, everybody thinks, well, this is working, and you know, they don't, they don't, um, well, they just think it's going to last forever. They don't have to put anything back into it, and that's why they always pulled out two or three cents out of every dollar of profit and use it for educational funds. And today, we still do that. We fund educational programs for. For young people, mainly high school, mainly college-age students, and um, and you know teach the what the principles of cooperatives are and how they function and how they work in everyday life. And yes, they have changed. Um, you know, Farmers Union in Kansas at one time probably had 
twelve to fourteen hundred local farmers union cooperative grain elevators, and you really don't see that. It, and they used to always tie it to an organization, the cooperatives, and that that faded, and that's rather unfortunate because. Um, you know, they, you had to be a member of Farmers Union to participate in those cooperatives, and and eventually, like I say, people never remained active on the board and the influence of the board, and they kind of let it slip out of the grass. They're still cooperatives; they still function well, but <clears throat> there's not quite that that tie-in, that sense of unity between you and your neighbor and in your township and your in your community about what that cooperative is all about. You know, as long as people can go to town and, and buy their diesel fuel or sell their wheat, they seem to be satisfied. But but it's, you know, cooperatives are a very special economic privilege, you know, that that is, um, you know, because of legislation passed many years ago in the United States that they can even exist. And it's it's a wonderful tool. And it's not just for agriculture, it's for other, other businesses too. But, but agriculture is mainly where you see these cooperatives. It's a wonderful, wonderful business tool that that we really need to protect and maintain. Well, I have focused a lot on this theme of cooperatives over uh, the past several episodes of this podcast, and um, one of the things that has emerged is that there are different kinds of cooperatives, and many cooperatives are uh, service-type cooperatives that provide services to their members. Others are uh, marketing cooperatives that allow people to pool their products and introduce them to the market. And then there is this third category of cooperatives that uh, are worker cooperatives. And um, in the current economic environment of agriculture in North America, it's very difficult for young people to access land. And so one potential solution to this or one way to approach this problem is for people to form workers cooperatives and that they share all the labor on the farm, and uh, they can build an economy of scale in that way. Uh, maybe something that's a little more labor-intensive than uh, what we see on the, the modern American farm. What are your thoughts on the formation, the potential for the formation of worker cooperatives for young people in agriculture? And um, how could the uh, model of the farmer's union or the history of the farmer's union inform that process? Well... Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, and, and I, that's what I see in agriculture today is a rebirth of, of the small farms. And it, it just it's going to happen naturally. It's already happening. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to have the large industrial-type farms. I mean, they're not going to go away. But what I see in Farmers Union, even in our organization, we have now the New England Farmers Union, which is, you know, mainly small, smaller-type operations, Maybe not exactly what you're talking about, but very similar to we have the Hawaii Farmers Union. Um, we're seeing, and I'm seeing at our national meetings, and we have beginning a beginning farmer group that's that's working on these type of uh, situations because they, that will that is the future of of I think of food and of agriculture. I mean, it's not for everybody. It's you know you're on, there's there's a place for for all these agricultures, although I'm, I'd like to really, um, I'd like to really focus on these smaller operations and, and, and these worker cooperatives. I don't know too much about them in particular, but, but I, I think that is the, the future. And I think it's out there for the taking. Um, and I, I, there, I know there's people in, especially in the Northeast United States that are, 
young people are working on on this and doing a, a marvelous job. And um, and yeah, so so yeah, and cooperatives are going to be their tool. That that's what it was a hundred years ago or a hundred and twenty thirty years ago, and that's the tool that's still in existence for them to use today. And our organization is embracing these people because we we know we know that that farms, you know, not, I'm a I'm a rather large farmer. I'm downsizing considerably, but but you know these farms are going to go away. And and but the land doesn't, and it, access to land is the big issue, and figuring out how you can how you can make these changes. But indeed, cooperatives will be the change. When you go back and read these old, like I say, the minute books from these organizations, you can see these people are. I mean, the, their issues are the same. Now, I'm going to say they maybe had less resources, maybe not. I mean, it's all relative. But um, I really need to probably republish some of these some of these old minutes. And, and it, you know, that's one thing I've learned from doing this history and what's really pulled me into it is that um, that the issues, like I said earlier, never really change. It's the resolve of the people. And, and um, so that's, what, that's what's fascinating. And, and I, you know, I, I just love to, to meet these people. I'm 62, but I, I love to meet these young people that have this energy and this feel because there's something inherent in the human spirit about farming and being part of that land and doing these things and it's it's just a natural thing and when i see that it's just like a breath of fresh air because because i know the road that i'm going down and a lot of my a lot of communities like mine are going down you know these things will will come to an end and that's that's not a bad thing that's not a bad thing it's how we control our destiny and how we control our future and 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 create well. What we really need to do is create our own communities, and cooperatives are just this outstanding tool to create these new communities. It's in place, and you, people just need to understand how they function and how they work. Part of the reasons cooperatives failed in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and maybe even to this day, was well, not to this day, but was um, lack of uniform cooperative law. And Farmers Union worked really hard in the early days to do that on a state level and on a national level. And probably what one of the most important things we can do now is to really keep our eye on the ball and make sure that that we're not, you know that legislatively they don't come in and try to attack cooperatives because cooperatives you know will be will be our future in agriculture I believe, and there will be there'll be forces that don't want to see that happen. And um, so, so yeah, and I and you know, there's organizations like Senex Harvest States and others that have educational funds for cooperative education. Farmers Union does a marvelous job of cooperative education on a state and a national level, and um, it's just critical. It's just critical to our future. So, say more about. You said one of the most important things that can happen is. Well, first you said uniform cooperative law was was a very important element that needed to be in place uh, for the cooperatives to succeed. Um, so can you tell us more about what you mean by uniform cooperative law and how that helped cooperatives succeed? And two, um, you said that people need to keep their eye on the ball and make sure that uh, none of that gets legislated away. So please flesh both of these points out in okay. more detail. Okay. Um as far as um, 
you know, uniform cooperative law, it is in place now. Oh, 20 years ago, or so in Kansas, I know there was, they were trying to chink away at, at different little pieces of on the armor of different pieces of cooperatives to, to make them more like a corporation than a cooperative. And, you know, the the thing about cooperatives, I believe, and the, the special thing that that farmers in, did a hundred years ago, they they helped form cooperative law that created equal opportunity. If you're a member of a cooperative, you're the same as the next member. You should be treated the same. You, you should be. If you aren't, if there's something wrong. And that's what, what makes it really unique. And we need to be careful because there's, there's, pushes. there's a push on to say, okay, instead of the one person, one vote, you know, well, you vote your stock. Well, then all at once you're a corporation. You're not a cooperative. And there, there has been pushes for that, and so or, you know how much business you do, and and whatnot. So, for cooperatives to function well, everybody has to be on equal footing, and that's not a problem. You know, it's really not a problem uh, to function that way. Some people think not so, but but I happen to. And then, you know, um, and like I say, keeping your eye on the ball because there there are there are also, you know, in cooperatives, there's a lot of assets and tied up. And and a lot of a lot of assets that people like to get their hands on. You know, one of the one of the criticisms of cooperatives is well, you have to die before you can cash in your stock. You know, and that's that's really not exactly true. But but on the other hand, you know, cooperatives are part of a. I mean, they're so deeply tied to communities, and that you need to make these investments in the community because I'm a larger farmer in my community, perhaps that my responsibility is larger to my community. You know, I mean, I, I, you just can't, you just can't let the big hogs of the trough take everything. I mean, that's why, you know, you learn a lot of lessons when you're, when you're farming and growing up on a farm and, um, or maybe years ago, like I did, you know, how they used to like, you know, keep different size animals fenced from each other, you know, give the, the smaller one a chance. uh, So they wouldn't be, literally eaten by another, you know, in case of hogs or whatever. And um, so, yeah, cooperatives can, can do a lot of this. They can create a level playing field. They, 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 like I say, they create a equal opportunity. And there, there will be those who say, well, you know, I put more money in this co-op than anybody else. Why should I be helping this other guy? And it goes back to what Dornblazer said over 100 years ago, you can't help yourself if you don't help the other guy. And that's a beautiful thing about cooperatives. So it seems like there are elements, and I think that this is no surprise to either you or I or the people who are listening, who are really um, counter to this democratic uh, model that we have in the United States, uh, whether it's equating money with speech or wanting to chink away at cooperatives legislatively. You know, this is interesting. I think that this is not new, and I think that this has been happening throughout the course of the United States, uh, our history. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite the contrast between this consolidated capital approach to everything versus this cooperative community democratic approach to everything. Exactly. And, and you know, that's what I, I just fascinating when I read. I have my own microfilm machine, and I've got numerous rolls of film with all these old newspapers, and and I tend to concentrate on from 1900 to 1940. But um, 
But yeah, I, in fact, I come across an article where a little small community just north of me, it's just a burg now, maybe, you know, less than 100 people. <clears throat> there was a local grain trader that, that was basically price fiction. He was the secretary of the Kansas Seed and Grain Dealers Association. This was like 1902 or three, And they actually had a law in Kansas called the Fraley's Antitrust Law, and they prosecuted him on this price-fixing case because that's what they were doing between the elevators. They were they were fixing the price. Anyway, to make a really long story short, it's a fascinating story because it went. It was appeal, he was convicted. It was appealed at the state Supreme Court. It was upheld. Went to the United States Supreme Court, and it was upheld. And so this guy had to come back and serve six months in jail and pay $500. But when he was in jail, they allowed him to continue his grain trading while he was in jail, set up a desk. So, you know, when you start hearing these stories about how powerful these influences are for the trust and the, and the, the price fixers and the money changers and, and whatnot. I mean, you look at it historically, and it still goes on somewhat today. I, I think the difference, one of the differences is today that that a lot of a lot of our society is is satisfied because they they have just enough. You know, I mean. You know, my line is they've got a six-pack of beer and cable TV, so what the heck? That's good enough for me. But those people realized what oppression was and what it was what it was like to not be treated fairly, and they went after it. And then they found out that legislatively it was very tough because people would make promises, but it, it ultimately never would quite do the job. And that's why they discovered cooperatives as a tool and it and it really worked and really functioned well, and you know, like I say, if you don't have cooperative education to follow up on why they exist, it's awful easy for the next generation, or maybe even shorter than that, to to realize or to to fail to realize why they're in existence. And uh, and yeah, there's there's a there is this resurgence as you mentioned in, in agriculture with with these cooperatives and. And uh, we just need to do a lot better job of of uh, making people aware of this tool that's available to have not cre- only create economic sense, but or, or economic uh, power and economic uh, um, opportunity, but also to build us socially, to build communities. And we realize that, yeah, we you know we've got to make a living in order to to live in these areas and. And but also that very fundamental premise is you know you can't help yourself or you don't help the other guy. Well, I have been involved with um, the sustainable agriculture movement for many years now, and one of the reasons why you and I are having this conversation is because my observation has been that there's been a great deal of focus placed on you know as the pendulum swings from a monoculture type commodity uh, model. Um, people have really focused on perennial agriculture and incorporating uh, livestock into cropping systems, uh, reducing pesticide use, reducing chemical fertilizer use, all these types of things that are associated with organic, sustainable agriculture or permaculture. Um, But they have done so, I don't want to say at the expense of, but um, without focusing on this social organization uh, that is so critical to making this a success. Now, I think that now it's starting to come into focus a little bit, 
But I think that the awareness of, one, the history, and two, the cooperative model is very, very low. And the amount of training and you know cross-fertilization of ideas that's happening in that realm is much lower than it needs to be. And hopefully, by con- through conversations like this, um, we can get that ball rolling. Yeah, I think you're, that's exactly key. You know, my, my interest in this started in 2007. We were having our centennial with our Farmers Union organization statewide, and, I, and they asked me to do a little bit of research because I'd been around about as long as most people had, and the bug bit me. And I started, I started reading, and, you know, we, we don't really discover things. We rediscover things. And, and, you know, like I say, the problems are the same. The issues don't really change that much. It's just the people's resolve. And, yeah, and, uh, I, and, and I just see it, I see it everywhere. And, you know, of course, the influence of money has a lot to do with everything. I mean, that's a, that's a trouble. I just wanted to briefly mention this about farm organizations and the shift that has occurred. And, um, and now we have commodity organizations instead of farm organizations. These commodity organizations represent the commodity, be it beef or wheat or corn or whatever, and they don't represent the membership. If you look at these organizations, they don't have a membership list. They don't have people that pay dues. What they do, they, they check off from the commodities they sell to fund these, but they do, they, they, they promote the commodity, not not the not the system, not the people, and and that's always been the problem with farm organizations is funding because farmers just are notorious for not wanting to fund their own organizations. That's why they sell insurance or tires or whatever else, find all kinds of other ways to fund their organizations besides dues, and and it's really a sad sad commentary on um, on farm organizations, but. We've seen a tremendous shift, and if you look at the political power and the formation of farm policy and farm programs and farm bills, you'll see it's not with general farm organizations so much. I mean, they have a they have a tremendous influence, but these commodity organizations are becoming a huge, huge player, and you know it's representing the industry and not the people, and that doesn't that should include both eaters and growers. Well, and, um, can you name some names in terms of these commodity organizations? Well, just pick a commodity. I mean, you got the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. You've got you've got uh, um, National Corn Growers. You you got the American Soybean Association. You've got you just anything that's got a commodity name in it. Obviously, is it generally. And if you look at if you look at funding, if you look at checkoffs in checkoff funding, hell, there's checkoffs on watermelons even. And these things these things are unique phenomena because they extract now granted you know they promote the commodity and, and you know supposedly that helps price but um, but they you know they take a lot of money out of communities I, I calculated in my home county that checkoff dollars are over a half million dollars a year that leave my county and just one county of 105 in Kansas and these are these are big big business. And and you know I don't know how much you, they bring back. I mean they they say they have returns of you know three dollars to one or ten dollars to one. But you know the bottom line is that that um, you know people can only eat about so much food a day, and that's if they have the money. Yeah. But so what you're doing, you're just shifting from one to another. Eat more corn, eat less beef, eat more watermelon. You know whatever it might be, you you go back and forth. And um, 
and you know farm organizations and commodity organizations alike should be should have a broader focus i mean they it shouldn't just be about the commodity it should be about our communities it should be about our people it should be about our future it should be about our economy it, it our education system all these things that and farmers union i i believe not just cuz i'm a member but but I think it's a champion. If you look at our policy, and you can go online and, and find us online and look at our policy, and it's just an awesome, broad-view organization. It isn't focused on, you know, how can we take maybe corn and turn it into a plastic sack or something like that, you know. And I think, I think our, our people understand the value of food, and they understand the value of land. And, and there's a lot of other people like that that aren't members of Farmers Union. It isn't exclu- we aren't exclusive. I mean, I've... Um, you know, people people are, are have that awareness. You know, and this, and this country is unique in the fact that we're a wealthy country overall. I mean, I know there's a lot of poverty. Don't get me wrong, but but you know, it's it's different, and we are unique in the world. And we need to have this broader vision, like James Patton did way back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And and I think we have that with our people. And and once we start thinking that way and, and start addressing addressing agriculture issues and agriculture problems and looking at that agriculture as that root word as you know the culture is that root word in there, which is really really important to to protect that culture to grow that culture and to to move that culture forward and that's why you're seeing this reemergence of of small farms you're seeing people raise food not commodities you know. And, uh, you know, it, it just goes on and on. Well, and I think that's why an organization like the Farmers Union sprung up in the time that it did. Farmers weren't just producing corn. They were producing, you know, animal products and um, fiber products and fruit and vegetables and many different things. And now where you have a farmer who just produces corn and soy, you know, it's quite it's much easier sell to for an organization to come in and say, we're going to represent your interests by representing the commodity that you produce. And I'll give a lot of I'll give some room to farmers. They're they're really busy and they they don't take the time to think. But you know, one observation I made a number of years ago is the fact that we talk about producers and not farmers. And that's I think that's interesting. I think that really desensitizes the whole the whole thing about food and food production. You know, if somebody calls you a producer, and you know they don't want to be. You know, some I guess they don't want to be called farmers. I don't know why not, but. But uh, you know, if you call, if I if you had never met me before, I met you on the street, and you say, "What do you do?" I say, "Well, I'm a producer," and you go, "Of what?" But if I tell you I'm a farmer, bingo, you know exactly what I am, what I'm talking about. So there's, I think there's been a process too of de- desensitizing, you know, people involved in in production, agriculture, out here farming, saying, "Yeah, you know, this is what you are." They, you know, farmers have their own image, and they should be and ranchers, and they should be very, very proud of that. And, uh, you know, it, you shouldn't let somebody else recreate that. And there's a lot of people hide under that umbrella of the term farmer or rancher. You know, a farmer, you know, I know some just mega operations, people call themselves farmers, but really they're business managers. And, and yeah, they, they do farm, but, um, you know, on a whole different level. And that doesn't make anybody totally right or totally wrong. But I think we need to rethink how we we look at this issue and i think a lot of people are and i guess i'm really optimistic that when i see when i see some of these things start to emerge even in our own organization or re re-emerge that yes 
We have that spirit. We have that knowledge. It goes back to our very fundamental name, Farmers Educational and Cooperative Union of America. So we're, we're educational and we're cooperative, and those are very key words. Well, one of the things I want to ask you about, and I think we can um, maybe conclude with this, but um, many of the people who are focused on more sustainable agricultural practices um, and then many of the farmers who are using methods that are maybe considered more industrial-type methods, um, the relationship that has been set up between these two groups is seems to be somewhat adversarial. And it feels to me, as I hear you talk about you know, many of the ideas that you have and many of the historical ideas that have been put out there and the historical events, that that adversarial relationship is really counterproductive. I don't know if that uh, relationship has kind of been placed there in some conspiratorial fashion by industry. Probably not. It probably has just kind of naturally emerged uh, through differing philosophies. But it feels to me like this relationship is counterproductive. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that and what your thoughts are on the potential for a group like Farmers Union to kind of bridge that divide and Mm -hmm. to get these groups talking to each other and to get them cooperating. Yeah, and and I think that that's true. That is out there. But you know what I guess I'd focus on is that bunch in the the group in the middle that are really conflicted, that really don't know, you know, they want to, you know, they've they want to be, they're, they're farmers, and they are farmers. But, you know, they're being forced into an economic situation where they embrace some of these other technologies that they're really not comfortable with. But but you get caught up in this flow, and, well, if I do this, you know, I can make this work. And and I, I think a lot of people are in that position, and that all boils down to the educational aspect. We've lost that center group. I mean, and we're, and we're losing it rapidly. And, and um you know, like I say, we're going to have that industrial type agriculture, because it, it because it has so much uh, capital and so much influence, it's it's going to exist. And then, but you have this other group on the other end that that has the heart and the soul, but they don't necessarily have the capital. And what we got to figure out in, in in food and fiber policy in this country is how how we can you know how we can you know cultivate that aspect of, of agriculture. I think it's important. I I come to that epiphany about five or six years ago. I looked out my across my yard into the field of wheat, beautiful field of wheat. And then um I a year or two earlier I just started my wife and I started to have a, a relatively small garden. And I you know I told her one year I said, you know, let's weigh with the scale what, what I take out of that garden. And it was like 1,100 and some pounds of all food. And yeah, my weed across the, across the driveway was definitely all food too, but, but I looked at that opportunity and, and what I could do on that small piece and what I, what I could produce and, and how good it was, first of all. But it really kind of pulled me back. And, you know, there's a tug of war about where do you go? You know, you got to, it, it's, it's a dilemma for people. And, and um, it has been for a long time. And it's easy to embrace, you know, labor-saving devices and, you know, do all these other things. But, but what happens, what I, what I see happening here is when is we, we're losing a lot of skill set and we're losing a lot of knowledge about how to do some of these things. And, and that, that's the downside sometimes of, of some of the 
technological advances, and I'm not anti-technology, believe me, I use a lot of it, but but I think I mean, that's always been the tug of war from from day one, and um, and it, it will continue to be, and it, it'll just be our job to to try to to focus and cultivate and and do some of these uh, other things in agriculture and provide opportunity, and and it, it'll be there. I think uh, it's 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 a challenge, but but it's not it's not impossible. So, but how can the organizational structure that Farmers Union provides? Um, how can that be a platform to, to help um, with this educational process? Well, we have an education department, and like I say, we have a beginning farmers group we've started in the last few years. And you know, we these people are networking; they're finding out what's what's working for them in areas. You know, a lot of a lot of people in, in the, our farm organization are very rural, and um, it's not as easy for them to transform into a different type of agriculture in living in a rural area with a small population base, as opposed to someone that might live in the northeast United States that has two million people within a hundred mile circle of where they farm. So yeah, there there is there are these challenges and um but our organization's trying to work with that and, and I think we're making a, a really good effort. And then you know, even in if you look deep enough, I'm sure in, in the farm bill, maybe not this last one, but the USDA, there's there's they're just edging into that area a little bit to provide opportunity and yeah, it needs to go a lot farther. But um but at least at least it's it's getting there. There's there's influence, there's people that are that are making this starting to make this small incremental difference. Has cooperative extension uh, kind of fallen off the radar in terms of being an important educational aspect for this cooperative and solidarity approach? Well, I don't know if they've fallen off the radar so much, but, you know, with all the funding cuts over the last decade or two, they've really been hamstringed about what they can do. And, you know, and that and that backs into our educational system, where you know, we, if we don't fund our universities well enough, then you'll have these large conglomerates come in and say, "Okay, here's some money," and they'll say, "Well, no strings attached, but that's baloney," and you can do this. And you know, our our research, our development, our education, all maybe not not intentionally, but it kind of gets it, it gets diverted a little bit away from what it should be, and. And the, the cooperative extension, in my particular area, is, has played less of a role because of that we've we've lost you know we've lost staff we've lost you know funding um, a lot of other things and maybe in some in some ways we maybe we've lost our way a little bit but <clears throat> but I you know I think they they still can play a very critical role and I think once again you're seeing just these these opportunities and they, they're starting to creep back in there a little bit, but, but, you know, we, we have to make some decisions in this country of where we're going to put our money and where we're going to put our funding and where, you know, what commitments we're going to make to the future. And this whole concept of production of food and fiber and, and who's going to do it and what our communities look like is very, very important and very critical. And that needs to be, that needs to be fully funded at their, just very few things that are more important than that one aspect. Well, Tom Giesel, thank you so much for all the work that you do uh, to research these important historical events 
and trends and processes. Thank you so much for your philosophy of solidarity and cooperation. And thank you so much for sharing it with me today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Tom Giesel, who is the Honorary Historian at the National Farmers Union. I'd like to thank Tom once again for joining me and for sharing a lot of his insights and historical observations. I think they are very useful, and hopefully you found them to be very useful as well. If you like the Agro Innovations Podcast and would like to support what I do, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the right-hand side of the website, agroinnovations.com. Next week, a discussion on the trends in community-supported agriculture in the United States. I hope you will stay tuned for that. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.